Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, and by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Welcome to this Under the Covers episode of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the Friday version of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where host Landis Wade and his author guests get under the covers. That's right. We get in and out because there are just too many interesting books and engaging authors in the region and not enough time. And just like the longer version of the show, you'll learn interesting facts about the authors and their books, and the authors will read their work. And also, like the longer version, you will find images, links, and information about the authors in the show notes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. We are a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network, a uh, collection of Charlotte podcasts produced in and centering around the Queen City, and also a proud member of Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, broadcasting radio shows and podcasts about authors to a worldwide audience. I'm Landis Wade, the producer and host of this podcast. I'm a recovering trial lawyer. I'm the author of a trilogy of books where lawyers save Christmas, kind of a cross between My Cousin Vinny and Miracle on 34th Street, and I write stories, and I love books, and I love dogs, and I love beaches and mountains and fly fishing and sports and reading and more, and I also love getting under the covers with my authors. So let's get to it. Uh, hey, listeners, welcome to this Under the Covers edition of uh, Charlotte Rears Podcast. I'm here today with Michelle Berger, and we're talking about her book, Renew You. Uh, it's published by Falstaff Books. It's a novella that explores the politics of beauty, corporate conspiracy, and unlikely female heroes battling a horrific virus that appears to be targeted against their race. What if a visit to the salon could kill you? What if a product billed as a natural hair relaxer harbored a deadly virus? Renew You is about that virus, and one reviewer says that in telling this story, Michelle uses the language of horror, of alienation from one's own body, not the language of joy, and that the novella never leaves horror and alienation entirely behind. Much of Michelle's work explores psychological horror, especially through issues of race and gender. This is a perfect episode uh, with, th- with uh, Halloween right around the corner here. So, uh, hey, Michelle, welcome to the show. Hello. I'm so honored to be here. <laughs> yeah, so glad to have you. I'm a little scared already with uh, <laughs> where we're going with this. Uh, congrat- congratulations on the book. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. I, yeah, I read it quickly. Uh, before we get into the book, though, I want to talk about you a little bit. You're a professor um, of women's and gender studies, and uh, you're also a creativity coach uh, and a blogger about creativity. Talk about that. Yes. Yeah, so I'm a creativity coach. Um, That's the other hat I wear besides being a research professor. And what I tell people with creativity coaching, it allows me to help people dream big, but Mm -hmm. also set realistic and accountable goals. Because to succeed, think in creative endeavors, you have to have structure and accountability. And I work with a variety of um, creative folks, people moving perhaps from one genre or discipline into another. I work with people who have been stalled with their stalled with their creativity for many years. I work around issues of perfectionism and procrastination, which are um, twin 
twin challenges for many of us as creative people, but I also work with people who don't necessarily think of themselves as creative. And I, and I talk about creativity as a type of competency and as a type of practice. And so once we have a sense of how we can be connected to that practice, we can usually move forward with our goals. Well, your story that we're going to talk about is definitely creative, <laughs> and we're going Thank to get into, get, in, get into that uh, in a little bit. Uh, and we're also listeners, uh, Michelle's going to be on the uh, the Patreon platform this month. We're going to be talking about uh, this concept of affirmation and how that uh, plays into uh, uh, not just the writer's life, but pretty much anyone's life, I suppose. Uh, so tune into that. Uh, Michelle, you're also, you say, a pug lover. Uh, I assume that means you got a really tiny dog of some kind. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I I love pugs. Um, and actually, I don't. Unfortunately, I, I don't have any. Don't own any pugs right now. I used to have okay. two pugs, and I I never thought um, I would be the kind of woman that would dress up their dogs. But I was that kind of woman because pugs are just so generous and fun and and sort of funny looking, and they and they make people laugh. And yeah. so. Um, and I, I, people have given me a lot of pug paraphernalia as well over the years. So I have pug banks and pug purses and all sorts of things. Yeah. One of the things that, uh, that you do, you stay invested in the writing community. I mean, you're a professor and you're teaching in that regard, but you're also a trustee on the board of the North Carolina Writers Network. And uh, just talk about that organization just briefly, because I think it's an important organization in our state. It is a very important organization. And in many ways, it helped me uh, come of age as a writer. So first of all, the North Carolina Writers uh, Network is our, one of our oldest um, art-serving organizations, begun in the, in the 1980s, and it seeks to connect, promote, empower, and serve writers at every level. And we do that in a variety of ways with a fall conference, a spring conference, um, various residencies. I believe before when we were talking, you participated in our Squire residency, as well as uh, supporting the literary heritage and elevating that in the state with a variety of prizes. Um, And I'll just say personally, so I I came to uh, live in North Carolina in 2002 and I had been living in the West prior to that, uh, originally from New York City, and was having um, just, you know, usual adjustments to moving to a new place. And at that time, um, I felt pretty stalled. Um, I t- like to tell people that I was metaphorically in the basement, we might say. So I was I was writing, for sure. Um, previously to coming to North Carolina, I had been part of writing groups. So I didn't, didn't have a literary community. And so um, a therapist actually told me, um, you know, North Carolina is, North Carolina is known for a couple of different things, a couple of wonderful things, um, a couple of controversial things. And she said, tobacco farmers, um, you know, you know, pig farmers and also, or the, the pork industry and also writers and the writing community. And she was, you know, had a twinkle in her eye. She said, you need to decide which community you want to be a part of if you're serious about writing. And so, after that, I found myself at the Fall North Carolina Writers Network Conference, and it was such an engaging, supportive, um, wonderful community. Something just clicked on inside of me, and I realized I didn't have literary community. And sub- after that point, I really became very involved just attending the North Carolina Writer Network's conferences and sort of expanding out. And I think for most of us, if we don't have a literary community, we usually are at a loss because we don't have people that are our confidence and who we can trust to support our work. And I got such great 
advice and support and then became involved. Um, we have what's known as regional representation. So the state is divided up across different regions and there are usually a number of people who will host various gatherings. So I got involved in those in my, in my county, which is Chatham County. And then, um, you know, I felt like I was already an ambassador for the North Carolina Writers Network and was asked to join. So I, if people, if your listeners are not a part of the North Carolina Writers Network, we're here to make a pitch for that because it really will support the craft and business as you move to the next level. Yeah, that's great. And, and as to those three communities, uh, working with tobacco or working with pigs or working with writers, I think you chose the right community. <laughs> well, North Carolina is known for so many more things, but she was yeah. sort of, with a twinkle in her yeah. eye, she said that. Yeah. Uh, and I think the only organization that's maybe old, the, the Charlotte Writers Club is like 98 years old, but the North Carolina Writers Network has been around for a while and does great work. Now, speaking of writing, your main love of writing uh, when you're not writing for work is speculative fiction. Why is that and what draws you to that? Yes. So I, I like to say that's where my heart is. I, I write poetry. I write um, creative nonfiction, but my heart is in speculative fiction. And uh, what I like to say in terms of a definition, it and it's speculative fiction is an umbrella term and it just encompasses science fiction, you know, what we think of as going to the Mars kind of sci-fi, like hard sci-fi. It encompasses magical realism. It encompasses, you know, modern fantasy, Game of Thrones, um, urban fantasy, horror. And what I, what, I, what I basically like to say is that it encompasses a way of storytelling that bends the laws of the rules of the universe that we know. And so all of those um, areas that I just mentioned are all reliant on storytelling that bends the rules of the physical universe that we know. Mm -hmm. And it allows writers to ask different kinds of what, what if questions. Um, and, and I found it to be just um, something that's been really important to the way that I want to tell stories. And, and I, and the other thing I'll say is that I've just really started to claim um, horror and, and sort of dark quote unquote dark fiction as um, an area that is, that is primarily important to me. And it's something that um, when I was growing up, I saw a lot of horror. I didn't really read as much horror as I did sort of science fiction and fantasy. But then as my work has gotten published and it, as people have sort of reflected back to me something, it's been clear that, you know, I play along that psychological horror edge and that allows me to tell certain kinds of stories. Yeah, well, that's interesting. And speaking of that story, we're look, I'm looking at your book cover now. Before we get yes. out of the covers, sure. let's talk about this book cover a minute. The, the listeners can't uh, see it. They'll see it in the show notes if they check it out. But uh, I don't know. It looks like a flame of some kind. What are we looking at here? Yeah. Um, and I have to give a shout out to Natasha Barron, who is the uh, cover designer for um, Falstaff Books. And so it, it's got this one, it's got this, uh, what I like, this kind of billboard neon renew you um, bright in the center. And then it has this, these swirly patterns of, of pink and orange and magenta. And it, and behind it, it's a dark cover, but behind it, you kind of see the outline of a city. So the story is set in the 1990s in New York City. And so you get a sense of that. But um, I think the the feeling that uh, the cover is going for is that sense of viral networks um, kind of coming together that sort of a sense of like a viral pattern. Um, and so it's a, it's a really uh, very vibrant color uh, in terms of the, 
the actual colors that are used. Yeah, it's almost it's like a neon sign, almost like you'd find in some futuristic uh, society after the world has come to an end a little bit. <laughs> or, or a barbershop. And I think yeah. it's also yeah. it's yeah. also like a beauty, like a sense of yeah. a beauty or barbershop sign, like lit yeah. up like that. So we're recording this uh, in early August. It's going to come out, uh, as I said, right right near Halloween. And I hope mm. that by then our real virus, uh, the one we're mm. dealing with, is we're making some progress. But uh, uh, let's do this. Uh, you mm-hmm. ready to get you ready to get under the covers? Absolutely. Hey, listeners! A special thanks here to the Redbud Writing Project, our episode sponsor. They offer creative writing classes in fiction, memoir, and more to adults. Located in Raleigh and use the uh, immediate community spaces around the Triangle due to the pandemic, all their classes are meeting online for the foreseeable future. Their classes include a workshop component, and they take a craft-based approach to learning writing. They offer advice prompts and lessons. They have a good time doing it, so if you'd like to learn more, check out redbudwriting.org. Also, if you'd like to support your uh, favorite local independent bookstore and get audiobooks at the same time, uh, you can join Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O.fm, and if you use the promo code Charlotte Reader, that's all one word, you may not be from Charlotte, but you can still be a Charlotte Reader to get this benefit. When you use that promo code, you're going to get uh, two books for the price of one when you join at uh, Libro's $14.99 monthly membership level. This is a great way to support uh, your local independent bookstore and get uh, great audiobooks uh, at the same time. So check it out. All right, so we're talking about the book Renew You with uh, Michelle Berger. And Michelle, this book is horror. It has a horror component to it. And you were you said you had a story about how you wrote this uh, well before we had our current virus. What was it that made you think about uh, this particular story? Because I know in a year from now, we're going to have a lot of stories coming out that relate to viruses because we've been experiencing it mm-hmm. you know, for the last four or five months. How, how did it come to you? So in the 1990s, when I was a graduate student, I watched an infomercial. So I'm going to take some of your listeners way back. (laughs) Um, And and infomercials were a new new way of advertising products. Um, And the product was called Rio. And at the time, it was billed as a natural uh, relaxer. And, And basically... Just as a sidebar, I like to say, you know, my the book is about um, hair and the politics of beauty, and really everyone mostly does something with their hair. Hair is also very racialized, is very gendered, but you know, we cut our hair, we dye our hair, we do various things. Um, and so, what was interesting about the infomercial is that literally some of the models would dip their um, hands in the product and say, "This is so healthy and natural, you can eat it." Right, and this is also at the time of the sort of organic boom and products being labeled green. And so I was just sort of paying attention. I didn't use the product. And what was interesting about a year, year and a half later, after the product had been out for a while, there was a class action lawsuit taken up by mostly women of color, but not exclusively, who had these um, horrendous stories of um, their hair, their scalps being burned, um, you know, incredible, like, just, you know, hair falling out. And so that kind of percolated in the back of my mind. I had been writing um, speculative fiction, science fiction for a while. And I just started thinking about, well, one, I started thinking about the push-pull, like here's a a product being promoted that's supposed to be healthy. And and actually the analysis came back. There was, there were all like, no, it was, it had higher doses of certain kinds of harmful products. Um, And so I just started thinking about the the push-pull, the the pull that, 
some women feel to do certain kinds of things with their hair. That's both very cultural. It's also part of his kind of historical legacies, which I can talk a little bit about. And then I just sat down and the characters came to me. So Landis, you know, you've interviewed lots and lots of writers, different people come to their stories in different ways. But for me, it was, it was the two characters, Kat and Constancia. And once I had the characters, I knew I wanted them to go on this journey. Um, and also, you know, I wanted it to, it set sort of right before the internet is starting to come forward. But the idea of being able to find out things very quickly is still new. It's before cell phones, really. And, you know, in the back of my mind, I think I was also playing with ideas of HIV AIDS, which was very formative in the years when I was growing up as a Gen Xer. So all those things kind of came together. And I just thought, well, what if um, there was really a virus perhaps that was being transmitted through this everyday, what gets billed as an everyday hair care product? And what if initially it is misdiagnosed and even ignored by doctors and medical providers for this group of um, women of color? And like, what happens? What happens to these women? How do they respond? And so it deals with, you know, some racial and gender inequities um, and tries to raise a lot of questions as well as tell an interesting story because <laughs> that's, yeah. that's always the main goal. Well, what ifs are a great way to tell a story. You start asking those and you, you string a couple together and you can have a story before you know it. Talking about the characters you just mentioned, Kat is an out of work ski instructor. She's just, uh, she's, she's actually been out in Colorado, uh, but she wants to return to Aspen. Um, she's, packing up her deceased mother's things, wants to leave New York City, but she tries this product, uh, Costancia, a talented but troubled young woman, just wants to start her first semester of college. You know, you meet them at two different parts of the book, but they end up coming together um, along with a collection of other women, which we'll talk about in just a minute. But I think now would be a good time. Let's read the opening of the book and give our listeners a flavor for this, uh, this setting and what we're getting ourselves into. Chapter One, Cat, August 1998, The Bronx. I always thought that I'd die somewhere in the Colorado mountains in a gruesome skiing accident. I'm a skilled skier, but there's always an electrifying element of danger that makes the sport precarious as well as fun. My left knee might pop right out of the socket, severing delicate tendons as it has done before when I try to do something too showy. And after my knee popped out, I would fall back on the snow, injuring my body, breaking my lower back, hitting a tree at about 70 miles an hour. The pine trees with their prickly arms would embrace me, and the slopes that I love would provide a picturesque burial site. If I didn't die in the mountains, I surmise that I'd die somewhere at a posh ski club, keeling over from a massive heart attack after I had outlived my usefulness as a ski instructor. At the very least... I hoped, as everyone does, that I would leave this earth wiser, a little thinner, moving right out of life's traffic into the path of something better. So far, none of my visions of death have come true. A lot's been said about the early infected. I want to tell my story because soon the virus will overtake me too. The politicians, bureaucrats, and scientists shouldn't be the only ones who get to have their say about the virus and what it did. Despite its carnage, the virus did something special for me and for four other women. 
So right away in the, in the opening uh, scene here, you're foreshadowing that we've got a virus. You're foreshadowing that the protagonist is sure she will die. And uh, you're foreshadowing that she's going to have an experience with four other women along the way. Um, so one of the scary things about this book is that it appears that uh, to this group, all of whom are uh, African-American, that they are being targeted with this product because of their race. That's a particular, that's a particularly scary, <laughs> scary idea in and of itself. Um, and I'm wondering as an African-American yourself, how you, how you think about those kind of, th- I mean, obviously this is fiction, right? But could something like this happen? And we'll just talk about that a second. Yeah. Well, and a couple of things. So Constancia is, is Puerto Rican. Okay. And, um, and a cat has a troubled relationship to her own past. So she, she identifies as biracial, but they're, they're women of color, uh, broadly. And, um, I wanted to play with some of those difficult issues. Um, I wanted to play with conspiracy theories, which is a, a main part of, you know, science fiction. It, it also has kind of a thrillery theme, but, um, you know, remember if we think back to HIV if we even think right now to the issues of coronavirus, um, despite having the World Wide Web, lots of different ideas about its origins, where it started, who it's targeting. So um, that seemed to play into some some juicy kind of ways of thinking about the work anyway. And it and I remember I was writing this in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, so I wanted to. I really wanted to explore the the multidimensionality of what it might feel like to be misdiagnosed because that's part of what happens in the story. And then women of color um, feeling really left out of this process, right, and minimized. And then that feeds into the characters as they come together and have to figure out what's happening. And um, I think in, in a lot of science fiction, especially popular science fiction, the idea of collective friendship is, you know, is there, but it's usually when we think about difference, it's usually like, like if we look at Wonder Woman, which I loved, I saw Wonder Woman twice, but it's like one woman and a bunch of dudes. Right. And, um, other kinds of stories, it'll be like, you know, a bunch of white folks and one person of color. And I, in this book, it was really important to shift that narrative and to think about collect the power of collective female friendships, um, because I think in a lot of media, women are often portrayed, and and black women and women of color are portrayed as sort of naturally jealous at each other's throats, and that's you know that's really you know that's a, that's a stereotype and and not true. So I wanted to dig into that, and I and I wanted to dig into the politics of beauty. You know, I wanted to dig into um, cons- ideas about consumer confidence. You know, the things that we pick up in the store we believe are being regulated or used in, in certain um, ways. And that's, that's not always the case. And I, and I guess the other thing I'll say is that, so, you know, for your listeners, there's actually a long history of um, really poor practices in the beauty industry by major companies. So if you look up L'Oreal, if you look up some of the major companies, you'll find that there have been lawsuits around, um, misinformation, mislabeling of products. 
And that has particularly affected, in some cases, um, people of color, women of color. So, yeah, I wanted to I wanted to play with all that. And and I this this novella really emerged out of um, a 400,000 word sprawling novel. And um, I was working on it off and on again in that metaphorical basement (laughs) for a long, long time. And um, a couple of years ago, uh, Mer Lafferty, who's a wonderful writer, a local writer in Durham, um, science fiction writer, she said, you know, why, why aren't you sending novellas and other pieces of your work out? And I went back to this and I looked at the heart of the story. And the heart of the story was, to me, this, this journey that these five women make together. And then um, it was originally published as part of a novella initiative by Book Smugglers Publishing in 2017. And did very well. And then Book Smugglers Publishing, unfortunately, um, like many small publish, publishing imprints, unfortunately, um, had to, they decided to um, go, had to cancel. They had to close down shop. And um, so persistence is really important for all the writers listening out there. But they they said, hey, you know, you have the rights to the work. We really encourage you to look for local publishers. And um, consequently, I pitched it to John of, of Falstaff Books and. It is now out. So anyway, the, the the book itself has had a long journey, but I, I I feel like the heart of it is getting at some of those uncomfortable questions around beauty and race and gender and health and who gets seen and who doesn't. Yeah, and the characters, uh, although you know they're all women of color, as you say, they come from different uh, class structures to some extent. There's some clashes that go on there. Absolutely. And, and, and one of the women makes a statement. I don't want to ask you about. She says, God forgot about women a long time ago. So where does that come from? (laughs) (laughs) I I think that comes from personal experiences in thinking critically about sexism and racism and other isms. And I, it's interesting that you chose that part because um, readers have, given me feedback around that for some readers, it really mirrors some of their experiences of feeling forgotten or invisible or lacking in power. And I, and I think we're at this moment in our, in our history, in our country's history, that um, we're seeing again, this renaissance of thinking critically about gender. I mean, that, that's what I do in my professional life, thinking about gender and power. Um, but, but that, you know, what's great about when you develop characters, you can use them to espouse certain kinds of ideas. So, you know, as you were saying with Constancia, she's Puerto Rican. She grows up in New York. She thinks that Kat is, you know, bougie and she doesn't understand why, you know, she doesn't know that like black people ski and, you know, she just has a lot of, she's got a chip on her shoulder and, you know, some of it's her, her class experience and also feeling invisible. And then, you know, Kat, it has other kinds of challenges. And then the other women, like you said, they kind of, there's a, there's a lot of um, talking and comparing notes and as, as the action is unfolding. All right. We have a few minutes left. You want to do the writing life and you've already mentioned something, which is persistence, how you started one place and now you ended up with another publisher. Uh, That's great. I want to talk about your muse just a second. Where does the muse of a horror writer hang out? Uh, is it at the witching hour? Uh, <laughs> I love when- <laughs> that. <laughs> I, to be honest, Lannis, I'm not precious about, you know, um, 
I used to, I mean, I, I will say I have like, you know, a ritual in that I like to sit down and light a candle and kind of get centered and listen to like great brainwave music. But I, a long time ago said to myself, I can write anytime, anywhere. And so whether that's my notes on my phone, whether that's like carrying a little notebook, which I do, um, I think you, you have to be open. You, you can't just wait for inspiration. So ideas are constantly it's not it's not so much the ideas most writers and creative people i know have a ton of ideas it's then figuring out which is the one to move forward now i will say that i'm very protective of my creative self and creative time and that helps in terms of um setting the 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 table so to speak so that you can get and be in the flow with ideas um So that's interesting. Well, you mentioned that the book at one time was much longer. It's a novella length now. And when I was reading it and I got to the part where, uh, and I'm not going to give away any spoilers because you you sort of lay this down. They're trying to get out of New York City. They're trying to move forward. There is this journey they're going to take. Um, and I was wondering why uh, you didn't decide to make it a longer book and do more with them on their journey. Or maybe you did, and then you ended up editing that to get to the current book. Which which was it? <laughs> yeah, so there is that novella. Novellas live in that really liminal zone. Um, not a short story, yet not a novel. So I think when I first submitted, it was maybe 15,000 words, and now it's like thirty or 40,000 words. And um, so to me, part of it was the, the playing with the structure. So... I am someone who's concerned about um, sort of the the role of language and literary craft. And so I was trying to do some different kinds of craft things in it. And so that the novella was a, I was already taking a risk by having a two, two person story. Um, But it, it felt right. It felt complete. Does it answer all the questions? Maybe not. Um, you can tell me off air, but but it 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 felt complete in in the in the journey I wanted to take the reader on. Right, and yeah, that, yeah. that's good. So, what was the most difficult part for you of writing this book? Oh my goodness, uh, tweaking, understanding the reader experience, and making that central as opposed to fancy writerly things that I wanted to do. Right. So it's always about putting the reader first when you're refining the text. And so trying to give the reader depth in character, um, that was really important to me, trying to give them a sense of the backstory. So, and also having them question, well, what's real here? So usually it's endings. But for this book, it was really kind of refining because I'm telling this kind of complicated, multiple piece together tale. So making sure the reader experience was going to be satisfying. Mm-hmm. Now, all these women in this book are on a journey. Um, you've been on a journey yourself in your writing. Uh, how has this book uh, been a part of your journey? And what does it mean to you to put this out? So I had been carrying this story, this idea, uh, these characters for almost, what, you know, 20 years or so. Um, and so when it got published, there's there's nothing like the satisfaction of seeing how seeing your work go into the world and and having that sense of completion is so important so it's really important to finish things right and then you have that sense of completion that it's out there in the world um i feel really grateful that it's having a second life with falstaff books and it just happens to be asking questions at a time when 
the more people are open to thinking about these questions, right? Like there's lots of virus books and epidemic books. There always have been in, in sci-fi, but it seems like this moment, the story gets people to think about that a little differently. So it means a lot. And it means a lot that a diverse set of readers are reading it. You know, um, Toni Morrison said we should write the books that we feel like we want, we wanted to read. Right. And I, I wanted to read a book like this ultimately, but I, I love the fact that so many different kinds of people are coming to the book and asking their own questions and also thinking about, um, yeah, what do I put on my hair? And like, <laughs> is it safe? I, I like, I like people staying up at night a little bit thinking about that. So that it's, it's just been a, it's been a wonderful experience. Yeah, well, I've got a lot of COVID here now that's uh, out of control, so I probably need some something on my hair. Uh, all right, so kids, when you're out trick-or-treating, be careful if somebody wants to put some uh, some hair product in your uh, trick-or-treat bag this uh, this Halloween. Uh, we've got to be careful about that. Uh, there will be information in the show notes about Michelle, uh, links, uh, photographs, that kind of thing. So uh, check it out. And Michelle, thank you so much for being on Charlotte Rouge Podcast. Oh, thank you so much. This was so delightful. Thank you. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to their written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Now offering video visits so you can take control of your orthopedic care from the comfort of your home. Schedule online at orthocarolina.com. Ortho Carolina, you improved.